Welcome to City on a Hill Church, Forest Hills podcast. We exist to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coahforesthills.org. morning, we're going to be continuing in Genesis. And we're not going to have our traditional scripture reading. We usually uh, read the scripture uh, before the sermon. And then we say, you know, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Or whoever reads it will say it. And then you'll respond by saying, thanks be to God. We're going to be covering large chunks of the, of the scriptures today. So I'm going to read it as we go. And we're continuing in Genesis. And as a church, we've been in a series in the book of Genesis since the middle of September, so about seven or so months, and have just kind of been marching through looking at different stories. And last week, we looked at the burial of Sarah and this really kind of odd story where you don't see God's name mentioned directly. You don't hear about the promises of God. It just looks like a burial and a business deal. And it's a little weird. It's like, how do we engage with this? But really, Genesis 23 is a little bit like how most of our decisions are made. Uh, most of the time, we don't have a flashing sign from God. There's no banner. You know, there's not, you know, there's no audible voice speaking to us, telling us this is the decision we need to make. But we see Abraham making decisions based on the promises that he had with God. That as we spend time with Jesus, we learn how to make wise decisions. And so one of the main themes throughout this back half of Genesis has been how God has called Abraham and will later see his family and how he's been, God has been faithful to his promises. And even through the failures and the stumbles of Abraham, God has been patient and restorative with Abraham. But the secondary theme has been how Abraham will apply these things practically. We looked at a section where Abraham had to make decisions. He was making decisions based on fear. He was making decisions based on pride. He was making decisions based on uh, despair. And how we are called to make decisions not in fear or or, or pride or despair, but in faith and in humility, but also with a confidence that God is good and will see us through. And so today, the story shifts to Isaac. If you look at verse one, we see that Abraham was old. Uh, My kids like to remind me all the time that I'm old or dad, you're getting old. I'm like, shut up. You want to live here? Stop it. And so uh, Abraham is getting old. It says he's advanced in years, which means that he is actually beginning to look at his life and he's beginning to look at the years ahead and he's beginning to wonder, what am I going to do to set my son up for success? He's looking to set up his son Isaac for success, and one of the things that he is trying to do is to provide a wife for Isaac. He wants to provide a wife for her, and if we're going to see in the story, he meets this young woman named Rebecca, and he takes her as his bride. So this morning, we're going to see some wisdom from the story of Isaac and Rebecca on dating and marriage. And so the question is, is what wisdom does Christianity give us for dating and for marriage? Now, I want to be really clear. Um, I don't think you have to get married. I don't think that's the, the, the fullest flourishing um, that with the, for, for a person. Some people get married, some don't. You're still a full human if you never marry. Uh, another person does not complete you, but marriage is a good desire Dating is a good desire, and so I think we need wisdom for these things as followers of Jesus, and we do believe that the beginning of all knowledge comes from the fear of the Lord, and we receive wisdom from God for everything that we face in this life. And so we need to explore what the Bible says, what Christianity says about uh, dating and marriage for a few reasons. Number one is there are less people marrying. Um, The average age for a person for their first marriage in the United States is around 30 years old and is increasing rapidly. And if you look at, uh, and, and I don't think it's because of a lack of desire to marry, 
Um, and if you look at Boston, that number is actually a lot higher because of delayed um, um, relationships because of career and school focus. So people are going from undergrad to graduate, postgrad, even doctorates, and waiting several years to get married. In fact, as it says, by the year 2040, one in four people aged 50 will have never married. Uh, and it's more likely you'll see people just simply living together versus marrying one another. Another reason we need wisdom for this is that there is less wisdom about dating and marriage. Uh, the world is giving wisdom. It's, it's giving its own vision of what dating and marriage looks like. But honestly, it's not very good advice. Uh, and what the world tells us is that you cannot be happy unless you have a romantic relationship. You're, you're not even a full person until you have another person who loves you back. And I really just blame Disney for this, right? We grew up watching Disney, and there's always Prince Charming, or, or you know, uh, there's Sleeping Beauty, and we see the prince go, which I really think the movie's about the prince. I loved that movie as a kid. We see the prince, like, hacking through thorns and fighting a dragon, and, and you're not fully a person until you achieve the goal of a relationship, Dating apps don't make it a whole lot easier, and I've heard from several people, even in our congregation, it is a wasteland on dating apps. That's not great advice. I hear some, I hear some chuckles, which I think is an amen to that. Um, and I want to be clear, mar- marriage isn't the promised land, but there's so little wisdom we have for dating in the world. And the other reason is there is such incredible pressure to be in a relationship, such incredible pressure. You may receive this pressure from other people, from your family members or your friends who ask questions like, hey, are you dating anyone? Hey, when are you going to get married? You can even extend this if you are married into, hey, when are you going to have kids? These are questions that I think that are well-meaning but often very hurtful. We see it with social media that every new dating relationship you see when the status changes on Facebook, every engagement announcement, every wedding invitation can feel a little bit like a dagger. And even that pressure can come from yourself because you sense loneliness or longing or fear or even just the, the, the terrifying nature of commitment. But the good news for us today is that the Bible gives wisdom that you need for dating and marriage. And so here's where stories like Genesis 24 can really mess you up. This is not a playbook. This is, it's not like saying, look, if you just draw up the water with an overhand technique, you'll finally meet your husband. It's not like, look, if you just put the nose ring on her nose and this manner, like, you know, you're going to find that wife. It's not saying that, you know, you just need to have enough camels. That, that's not what we're dealing with here. As, as I've said before many times, the Bible often, particularly in a narrative like this, is descriptive, not prescriptive, meaning that we can't just apply directly the things we're reading here and assume that's what we need to do for relationships. But we can draw some principles from the text to help us see how God has good for us around relationships. Now, if you're married, this is not the time to check out. I'm going to be honest with you. Just like when we preach about marriage, single people, there's a lot of things for you as well. If you're married this morning, there's going to be some things you can apply from this. But also, there's going to be some things from this that you can use to love your single friends and, and, and neighbors inside of our congregation. And so, when we look at something like this, God is, is likely not going to give you a sign from heaven that someone's the right person. You're not going to be able to like, put your finger on a verse in the Bible and say, well, it's talking about a tanner, so it must be a guy named Tanner. Or you see somebody named Hannah, so it's got to be, it's not, it doesn't work that way. But the Bible does give you wisdom for two things, who you should become, and then secondly, the kind of person you need to look for. 
So we're going to do something kind of different this morning. We're going to go through the text. I'm going to read and make some observations. And in the back half, we're going to look at some, some principles and some practices about dating and about marriage. So we're going to start here in chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. It says, now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. So he's passing everything down to Isaac. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest in his, in his, of his household, who had charge of all that he had. And this is likely a man named Eleazar, if you look at Genesis chapter 15. And, and he says to him, he says, put your hand under my thigh, which is an awkward statement, uh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But I will go to my, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now that that very awkward exchange, we're not adding that to the church membership covenant. I can promise that um, is a symbol of uh, of future generations. It's a symbol of saying you're going. We, I, I want this relationship to lead to offspring, so that you can extend the promises to the nations. And so we see the servant respond. He says in verse 5, perhaps this woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And so he's thinking she may say no to this. Abraham responds, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, um, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and who spoke to me and swore to me to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you shall take it a wife for my son, from there. So very important that he did not want him to take a wife from among those people. Now, the, the servant goes, and he goes, and he meets this young woman, and he's praying ahead of time. He's saying, I, I, want, I want you to, Lord, to, to give me a son. Help me understand who I'm to choose. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Verse 10, uh, the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he rose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor, and he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women uh, go out to draw water. So he's looking at the most likely place he could find to meet a potential spouse for Isaac. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I'm standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink and who shall say drink and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this, I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. So he has this idea of the type of character he's looking for in this woman. And he sees Rebecca, verse 16, behold, um, he had uh, finished speaking. Behold, um, before he finished speaking, behold, Rebecca, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water on her shoulder. So he, she meets the qualification. She's someone from the people of, uh, of Abra Abraham's homeland. And he notices the woman's beautiful. She fits all the, the criteria. Verse 16, the woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had, um, had known. She went down to the spring and filled her water and came up. Now, this seems really weird to us because we're imagining, like, if you were to see someone and go, man, they seem like a really good fit, but find out that the, they're your cousin, um, you're like, this, this, is, this is a no-go, right? Like, that we shouldn't do this. This was actually good news to the servant. Back then, he was trying to find someone within the family that he could marry to continue the promises. 
And so we see in verse 17 that she actually does fit the criteria. She fits the, the, the character criteria. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, drink my, uh, my Lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. So acted very quickly. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So it goes above and beyond. So you skip down to verse 21. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. So he's imagining, so he's saying, she's fitting all the criteria I could possibly imagine for someone to marry Isaac. And in verse 21, I'm really fighting the urge to like sing single ladies from, by Beyonce. You don't want to hear that. And this is a little bit like putting a ring on it. So what he says in verse 21 is, when the camels had finished drinking, the, the man took a gold ring, which actually would have gone in her nose, weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing 10 gold shekels. This is like making it Facebook official. He, he, he's saying, I want you to, to you, you know, they're getting sort of, it's kind of an engagement type of thing. Um, again, a little bit distant from 2023. If you skip over to verse 26, we see that um, the servant praises God because he believes that he's found the right person. Uh, it says, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsmen. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. And she goes home to tell her family of all the things she experienced and how God may be working in this. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man. And as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and the place for the camels. And so Rebecca runs and tells her family and spends the next 18 verses, I'm not going to read it again, basically retelling and recounting to her family what had occurred and really beginning to seek their approval. We turn to verse 49. The servant is looking for an answer. It says, now then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. He just wants to know if it's a yes or a no. And the, the family goes back and forth trying to determine if this is going to be an immediate thing or if she's going to wait 10 days, if they get a chance to say goodbye. And finally, they put it back into Rebecca's hands. Verse 57, they said, let us call the young woman and ask her. They wanted her opinion. She had some say in this. And they called Rebecca and said to her, will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. And then we see Rebecca's family sing this beautiful song over her of blessing and prophecy and hoping that these things would come to bear in her life. And as you look at how the chapter ends, it's a very beautiful scene. Uh, we see Isaac in a field, probably like wearing like a flannel shirt, and he's working at a small town bakery. And, and here comes Rebecca as the big city executive looking for love. No, I'm sorry, that's, that's a Hallmark movie. I apologize. Uh, but we, they see each other, and, and they, they, they meet, their eyes meet with each other. And, and Rebecca, we notice as she sees him and asks who this is, he says, this is my master. And she covers her face, which is a really interesting thing to us, because you'd imagine she's like, right, we'd think, hey, she just want to show who she is, show everything that she is to him. She, she actually is being modest. And this is a sign of betrothal, which was a, kind of a period between engagement and marriage. And we see here that they love one another and they marry and they live happily ever after, right? 
Well, if you look a little further into the book, which we'll cover in the coming weeks, it's not as happy as you might imagine. There's all sorts of fallout. So that's kind of the story of Isaac and Rebekah. Now I want to draw some wisdom from this story. And the first thing I want to do is look at a few principles. The first thing is it's okay to desire a relationship. It's okay to desire a relationship. We see that Abraham desired this for Isaac in verses two through four, that he wanted a mate for his son, someone that he could marry, someone that he could glorify God with, someone that he could have children with and extend the blessings to the nations. We see that the servant desired this for Isaac, that the servant went to great lengths to make sure that Isaac was able to meet somebody. We see that Rebecca desired this, that she desired a husband because she also went to great lengths. She was willing to go when she was asked immediately. It's an absolutely, absolutely normal and natural and healthy desire to desire a relationship. It's built into creation. It's built into us a desire for intimacy between a man and a woman. And we see this in Genesis 2 when God creates a pattern for human relationship and marriage between Adam and Eve. We see this as a very normal and natural desire. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife, and you could flip that around and say that she who finds a husband finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. It's clearly not wrong. It's, it's, it's not a bad to desire that. And Solomon says it's good if you find it, and God has shown you favor in this. So it's okay to desire it. It's also okay to pursue a relationship. Abraham and Isaac didn't sit back. They didn't wait for lightning in a bottle. They didn't wait for a woman to fall out of the sky. They took deliberate steps, wise steps toward meeting a godly partner. And I'd say that if you're, if you're going out of your way to appear completely unavailable or you're, or you're so terrified of commitment or you're just waiting for the perfect person to come knock on your door, I don't know that you're being super realistic if this is something you desire. It's okay to go on dates. It's okay to try to meet people. This is a good pursuit. It's a good desire to find a mate in a godly way. But I do think we need to be careful that while it's okay to pursue it, while it's okay to desire it, if that desire or that pursuit of a relationship becomes so strong that it becomes all-consuming, that it becomes something that you have to have it or you're just not really a full person, it's become an idol. It's okay to desire a relationship. It's okay to pursue a relationship it's not okay to make a relationship a savior. And you know you're doing this if you're making it an idol when it, this is the thing that gives you value. That being in a relationship is what makes you have worth. This is what makes you feel good about yourself. And the problem with this idol is if you don't get it, your self-worth will be completely tied to whether you have a date, whether someone finds you attractive, whether you find a spouse, or if you are in a marriage and for, for some reason it falls apart, it can also destroy your confidence. It's easy to be crushed by relationships. It, it's easy to become bitter if you desire a relationship and you don't find it. It's easy to become despondent and you just kind of tuck into a shell. I, I'm not saying that you can't be disappointed. It's okay to long for something and be disappointed in it, but if it begins to determine your self-worth or makes you hard-hearted towards other people, you're in, you're in danger. But let's say that you do get it. It's going to disappoint you. A relationship will ultimately disappoint you because there is no man or woman who has the ability to bear the full weight of your heart's desires. And it's either going to crush that person with your expectations that they'll never love you enough, 
They'll never be kind enough. They'll never be, never be romantic enough. They'll never be adventurous enough. They'll never be committed enough. They'll never be safe enough. Or it's going to completely underwhelm you. I always tell married couples when we go through marriage counseling, I said, give it six months. And in six months, you are not going to like this person. Can I get an amen from anybody who's married? You are not going to like this person. And here's why. Because all that stuff that was adorable at the beginning becomes annoying. Like the way he brushes his teeth is going to bother you. The way that she laughs is going to start to grate on your nerves. Those little habits that were like, oh, you could overlook, will eventually become absolutely annoying. I cannot tell you how many fights we've had in my house over the trash or the fact that I leave socks in weird places. Uh, I take socks off, they get tucked in the couch, and my children have adopted this from me. Eventually, you like each other again. It takes time. It takes work. Marriage takes work. But what we have to understand is that whether you're single or whether you're married, your value doesn't come from your relationship status. It comes from Jesus. Your value comes from Christ. And this is why if you're pursuing a relationship or you're in a relationship, you have to believe the gospel deeply. You have to believe that you are deeply loved, not because of who you marry or who you date, but because of Jesus and what Christ has done for you. And the reality is, is that let's say that Rebecca did say no. Isaac is still a child of God. Let's say that Isaac rejected Rebecca. She wasn't completed by him. They could continue to enjoy God together. So it's okay to desire a relationship. It's okay to pursue a relationship. Just don't make it your savior. So now I want to take a few minutes and get practical about this. What are some practical helps? Because if you desire to, to, to date, desire to be married, I do want to give you some, some, some ways to go forward with this. So a few practical helps. Number one, first of all, is look within God's family. In other words, look towards other Christians. Abraham tells his servant, he says, don't go to the Canaanites. Don't go to the people around us. Don't go to our neighbors. Now, why is he saying this? Is it because they have like bad breath or something? They're bad dancers? Um, I, I, no. Is, it, is he being racist? No. The Canaanites were idol worshipers. They worshiped different gods. And we saw the pain that this caused in Genesis chapter 6 when the sons of Adam began to uh, intermarry with the sons of the world or the daughters of the world. And they began to do this in such a way that it led them away from worshiping God and they missed the true purpose of what God had called them to. It led to all sorts of wickedness and pride and this, this beating their chest about human achievement. And, and, and look, I'm sure some of them were very attractive. I'm sure that some of them were nice people. I'm sure some of the Canaanites were even very compatible. You can, you can engage with someone who's not a believer and you get along really well. But we need to understand that you can miss the purpose of human relationships and marriage, that it's not just about finding someone to make you happy, but it's about dating someone in such a way that it exemplifies and pictures the picture of Christ in the church. That the purpose that God has for dating is to lead to marriage, to mirror this reality. And so what Abraham wants for Isaac is that he would marry a woman who was godly and would keep his focus on glorifying God. And this is why 2 Corinthians 6 tells us, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And you see this imagery of the yoke throughout the scriptures. And what it means is that you're pulling in two different directions. It, it doesn't mean that the person's not nice, it doesn't mean you can't get along, but spiritually you're pulling in two different directions, and the reality is, is you'll eventually pull in one way or the other. 
Now, you may find yourself in a marriage like this already. I'm not saying leave that person. You definitely shouldn't do that. But what do you do? Paul gives advice for this as well. He says that you should love that spouse. You should pray for that spouse. And you should seek that spouse's salvation so that one day you can rejoice in God together. But if you're single now, the practical advice for this is to look for others who share the same hope and love that you have in Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean you can't be friends. You shouldn't just avoid people who aren't Christians. You should be friends, but be careful not to get entangled emotionally or relationally or romantically. Now, I know this is really hard in Boston. There are very few Christians. There are very few options. When I first moved to Alaska, Alaska is like 70% men, 30% women. I met my wife there, but even for the ladies, it was a little weird because as they have a saying in Alaska about men that the odds are good, but the goods are odd. I'll let you work that out on your own. Um, that's probably how it, kind of how it feels here too, right? In, in Boston, it's like, I've met some people, but they're a little odd. Um, do what you can to be around other single Christians. Um, and, and the best way I can really tell you to do this is, is be involved with the, with the local church. Be consistent gathering on Sundays, serve in our church and outside our church in ways that, that allows you to rub elbows with people who, who are followers of Jesus. This is one reason we do our City on a Hill retreat. We get to connect with people from other congregations. And, and I'm not saying this is like a big matchmaking service, but as you're doing these things, you may find yourself in a position that you meet somebody. So we need to, we need to look within the family. Secondly is you have to examine character. You have to examine character. And the first place you start examining character is right here. You have to examine your own character first. And this is vital. You have to start with yourself. Because why did Rebecca respond this way? How, how did she know to respond with kindness and grace and selflessness? It's because she was already pursuing godliness. It, it came out of who she was. And she wasn't doing this to impress a guy. She, was, she didn't like see Isaac checking her out and was like, let me, let me, you know, let me really water those camels well. Like, she wasn't doing that. It just came out of who she was. And if you look at your own life, are you a person who's abiding with Jesus? Or are you joyful like Jesus? Are you generous like Jesus? Or do you tend to be given to bitterness and negativity? Or maybe you're living in some ways that don't honor God. And here's what begins to happen when you begin to focus on your own character first, is you become less focused on solely finding someone. You become less focused on finding someone to complete you. You begin to become satisfied in Jesus. But also what begins to happen is you begin to see that godly joy is attractive. When you're pursuing after Jesus and becoming the person God wants you to be in Christ, you actually become the type of person that other people are drawn to. And this also applies in marriage. You want to be the best husband possible? Look to Jesus. You want to be the best wife possible? Look, look to Jesus. Become like Christ. But it also causes you to know what to begin to look for. As you become the person God is calling you to become, you then start looking for the qualities in other people that are godly and honoring, and you're not going to be blown away by how beautiful or how handsome someone is. So examine your own heart first, but then examine other people's character first. The servant noticed her beauty. Well, I'm, saying that, I'm not saying that attraction doesn't matter, but what sealed it for her was her response, how she responded in, in a way that was godly. Now, let me tell you what happens most of the times if you're single and you walk into a room, and this is the scenario that usually plays out. 
You can walk into a room, and if you're a man, you see six eligible women, or if you're a woman, you see six eligible men. Here's what often happens. You eliminate like four of them, like right out the gate. You're looking, and you're like too short, too tall, not muscular enough, way too many veins showing on those muscles, funny-looking elbows. His hair looks like the villain from Princess Diaries, too, and I just can't do that. Like, we do that, right? And what often happens when we do that is you never take the time to get to know someone, and you end up looking over some really good options. Examine character in such a way that you get to see someone when they're not putting on a show. And it's really hard when you're dating to do that, because if you go on a date with somebody, man, you put on your best clothing, right? Like, you're like, I'm putting on, like, a new sweater. If you're a guy, you're like, I'm buying, like, new everything. I'm going to do some push-ups before the date. Like, I'm going to put my best foot forward, right? You go on a date with somebody, and you're, like, telling your funniest jokes. You got, like, three of them, so you're, you, you know, you, you, can't, you can't tell them again. So you got to get them out on the first date. You turn on all the charm. You watch the words that you say. But the problem is, is that true characters are revealed when nothing is in it for the other person. Rebecca didn't act godly because she was trying to impress Isaac. She was just godly. And the servants saw that. The character that you're looking for, and hopefully that you become as well, is someone who's generous and hospitable. Is the person generous with their time, with their energy? Do they care about serving somebody else? That's also both gentleness and strength. You don't want somebody who's a complete pushover, but you also don't want somebody who has no sensitivity. I think someone who's both compassionate and courageous. Someone who's going to build you up, but is also so confident in Christ that they don't need you to constantly affirm them all the time. And I think the absolute most important thing you have to look for is, does this person make you love Jesus more? Does this person lead you to love Jesus more? So we look at character, but a way we examine character also is we trust others to speak in. You know, the first time you go on a date with somebody and you like really like them, you see no flaws, right? You see there's nothing this person could possibly do wrong. You are absolutely smitten. And you know what that means? It also means you have no perspective. You have no ability to see the, the flaws a person has. You need trusted friends that you can bring someone around to look at a person and be able to know if they have the right character. Like I dated a girl when I was in college very seriously, like really considered marriage with this girl, like really liked this girl. We got along really well. But I had good friends who looked at me and said, Stephen, something's not right. And they said, when you're around this person, I don't like the person you become. It's super subtle. Like I didn't see it. And if I had listened to them early on, you know, when you're like 20, 21, you're like so bullheaded. You're like, yeah, no, you don't know. I love her. Like, no, like, like if I would have saved myself a lot of heartache. But the flip side is when I met Amy, my wife, we both had trusted people in our lives who could vouch for our character and say, this is the kind of person this is. And I actually think you guys would work out really well together. Alistair Begg says that Christian character is always worked out in the context of relationships. You see character over time verified by other godly people. And this is why when the servant mentions Abraham in verse 26 and verse 34, this was a good thing for Rebecca and her family. They knew Abraham. They knew his family. They knew the type of person that Isaac was. When the servant was going to Rebecca's family, she knew the type of person that Rebecca was. They knew one another. And so I'd say to you, if you're dating someone or you're interested in dating someone, bring them to church. 
Bring them to your community group and let other people examine the person. I'm not saying like sit there like a, like a firing squad and like ask him questions, but let them spend time with both of you and begin to see the person's character. Allow them to speak in and give advice. And so for you this morning, like maybe this is, that's the next step you need to take is you need to be more involved with the church. You, you need to get into a community group and be known by other people. So let others speak in. And then the last piece of practical advice is that you have to remember your unchanging purpose. Whether you're married or whether you're single, you have the same purpose, and that's to honor and to glorify Christ. Your relationship status may change, but your purpose does not. Getting a relationship or getting married is not the promised land. It's not the promised land. It's an avenue by which you can glorify God. If Rebecca had said no, Isaac would have gone on and glorified God. Rebecca would have also gone on and they still would have been people trusting in God and his promises. They wouldn't have been utterly crushed if this didn't work out. We glorify God together, whether you're male or female or married or single, as people called together as the church, looking to Jesus, honoring him so that more people can know the life that comes from him. So here's how we do this together as a church. We have to seek Jesus passionately. We have to seek Jesus above even a relationship. We have to seek Jesus, first of all. Secondly, it's just serving according to our season. The Bible does say if you're, if you're single, there's a certain devotedness you're able to have. Uh, you, know, you don't have your time divided. If you're married, understanding that you're also serving your spouse in that, you're serving God together. But I say a way that we can really practically do this as married and single people working together is to extend the borders of our families. So that our dinner tables don't, aren't just our nuclear family, that we're, that we're inviting single friends into our spaces to share dinner with us and to share life with us. Single people inviting married families into your home and loving and serving one another. And here's the good news that underlies all of this, is that regardless of your relationship status, there's a better groom who perfectly loved his bride, the church. Jesus perfectly loved us to the point of going to the cross so that you could be brought into God's family, that whether you're single or you're married, that if you trust Jesus, you're already more perfectly loved than you could ever imagine. And that's the only love that could possibly ever satisfy, that you're a part of a family looking to Jesus.